this story at the beginning of Acts chapter 23 makes me think of Joseph. Not Jesus' adopted father, but um, the Old Testament Joseph, the brother of the eleven sons of Jacob. And the fact is that, I mean, he had a tough life till age 30. I mean, we should say maybe from age 17 or whenever it was to age 30. He, uh, a lot of bad things happened to him. And it, it, you know, just reading it by watching the events on the outside, we might be tempted to think, God is not with that guy. These things are happening at random. What It's a series of unfortunate events. Is that the Lemony Snicket line? Um, he's thrown he's he's thrown in a well his brothers want to kill him out of mercy quote mer, air, scare quotes mercy they decide to sell him to slave traders yay so he stays alive but then he goes down to egypt and he works as a sold slave to for uh, a manager in pharaoh's household potiphar and he he's quickly becomes the Potiphar's right hand man. He's trusted with his whole household, and and um, his wife sees how foxy Joseph is, and st- says, "Sleep with me" a number of times, and Joseph refuses. And she misrepresents him and says, "Though he tried to sleep with me," and frames him, and uh, he gets thrown in the in the clink. And the whole time this is happening. He's being sold, he's being misrepresented, he's being lied about. He, it says God is with him. God was with him. So he makes everything he does prosper. But he's in bad place after bad place, which is why I think about him when I think about this passage here. <coughs> um, because God, it show, we, we, learn, we learn by the end of the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis that not only is God with him in all these places, but God has put him in all these exact places where he's endured a lot of pain so that he might be a witness to the one true God and say, and have a particular salvific role to play to save Egypt, to save his family, his 12 brothers, and his father, and to bring them down to Egypt and take care of them. And uh, God has a plan for him. God is putting him in particular places to be a witness in word and deed, to do things for God uh, in God's plan that will end up saving people. And that's, that's really bottom line what I think the message is here at the beginning of Acts 23. You have a bunch of other stuff happening. You have... Um, what do you have? You have the, he's brought to trial and he's brought before the high priest. He doesn't at the moment realize this man's the high priest. Cause I mean, Paul's been, um, he's been gallivanting all over the Mediterranean, the Northern Mediterranean rim, planting churches, making disciples, preaching the gospel, getting beaten, thrown in jail, writing letters for years. And so he doesn't know that this man has been appointed high priest while he's been gone, but uh, he, the man falsely, he has this, he has Paul slapped on the face because Paul says, I've, I've kept the law from my youth. 
I've never knowingly broken it. And the man thinks he's lying, and so he has him slapped on the mouth. And Paul says, you, you're going you're gonna to judge. Uh, you're doing that without cause. You're going to be judged, you whitewashed tomb. You whitewashed wall. He's picking up on Jesus's phrasing and um, to the Pharisees. And, and this man, how, this, and then someone says, how dare you revile the high priest? And then Paul says, oh, you're not supposed to revile a leader of your people. He knows the law back and forward. He just pulls out some very obscure verse from the Old Testament, from the from the Torah. And um, he says, I didn't know he was the high priest or else I wouldn't have done that. So so anyway, that happens and I had a little exchange. And then um, then he people start arguing about, well, he gets brought to trial and he, he perceives because he knows so much that some are Sadducees and some are Pharisees and the Pharisees believe in a resurrection and believe that all of what we consider the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures are the word of, is the word of God. And the Sadducees only believe in really that the first five books are, and they don't, they don't believe in a resurrection. And so he perceives this and he throws out, he's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a flare over here. And he says, oh, uh, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection, that the, the Messiah is risen from the dead. And then they start arguing about that. And the Pharisees say, well, why, why couldn't he? We believe in the resurrection. Maybe he, maybe, he, maybe he has seen. And then the Sadducees are arguing. So he starts this internecine, internecine war between these teachers, and uh, <clears throat> the focus is taken off of him for a time. But <clears throat> I think that can distract us. That's all interesting, and I know it plays a part in the historical record, and it's in there for a reason. But um, at the end of that little passage here, um, we have this. So, so our passage is really just we're just looking at Acts twenty two thirty through twenty chapter twenty three verse eleven, and really at the end of this passage, there's this verse, and it says, "The following night." So, so Paul is still in the clink. He's taken back to the barracks, and he's <clears throat> he's under arrest. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sick, as you can probably tell. Verse 11 says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And that's just a really powerful verse. And it kind of sums up, I think, the thrust and the power of what's happening in this passage in this in this period in Paul's life. Because the fact is, we see, just as we saw with Joseph, we see here in the life of Paul, and it's true of our lives, friends, that Christ has put him here, and he must testify in Jerusalem. He has been told by a prophetic word given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets who are Christians, who are followers of the way, who trust that Christ is the Messiah, who are born again, don't go to Jerusalem a few weeks before he was told, or else you're going to get chained up. You could die. And Paul says, I'm going. I believe that I believe you. I believe that that's God's word that I might get chained up, but I don't believe that what God is telling me, therefore not to go. I think he's warning me that that's going to happen and that he's with me. And that's exactly, we see this, that Paul vindicated here because we see that Jesus's plan, God's plan all along is for Paul to testify in his chains with this as a captive, but with a captive audience before these rulers and to other people of what he's seen and heard his encounter with the risen Christ 
that Jesus is the Messiah, that he fulfills the scriptures, that he's come to live a life of obedience to the Father in our place and to die the death that we deserved in our place. And he calls us to faith in him. He's alive, he's reigning, he's returning to judge. We better flee to Christ. We better take refuge in him. Paul has met the risen Christ. He, um, he has seen Jesus change him and he has seen Jesus change countless hundreds if not thousands over the course of his, of his ministry. And he is called Paul. Jesus has called him to be chained up in Jerusalem, just like Jesus was chained up in Jerusalem 30 years before he knows exactly what it feels like. And he was called by the father to that in order to be crucified. That was God's plan. That was Christ's mission. Therefore, and his plan for Paul is to suffer for his sake and through his suffering to be a witness to people of the risen Christ and his plan is for Paul to testify in these places, in these hard places during the shipwreck chained to a prison wall, writing letters to the Philippian jailer. Don't kill yourself. Don't thrust that sword in. Don't commit Harry Carey. We're here. Believe on Jesus. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer says, believe on Jesus. And he's saved and his household saved. And the Philippian church starts and it's an amazing church. You can read all about it in Paul's letter to the Philip to the Philippians. But the point is, in every place, God is putting him in. The, he's not just ha- we don't just end up in places, friends. God puts us in places. He puts us in places of pain and privation f- so that we can witness of what we've seen and heard to Christ himself. Hey, look, let me tell you. And you're in this place. You're in this particular place because God has put you there and he's put you around certain people and certain things have happened to you. The pain in your life, the pleasure, the triumph, the sorrow, it's all happened to you so that in such a way, you and only you in this way can speak to these people that God's put you around and you are to be a witness to Jesus there. So he's, <clears throat> he's, uh, he's to do that here in Jerusalem, but Jesus says also, look, this isn't the end of you. You're going to Rome. I'm taking you there. I want you to go there too and you're going to do it under arrest, essentially. So, so Paul is reminded this is not an accident. I have this for you. Also, I'm with you because it says what? It says that... Um, the Lord stood by him. He literally stands by him. And I don't think that just means he's in proximity to him. He's with him. He is behind him. He's telling him, hey, I know this. And what is it? when he says, take courage, he says that to his people throughout the scriptures and throughout history. Hey, be strong, be courageous, don't fear. He said that to Joshua. Why did he say that to Joshua? Because Joshua's about to go take the land and kill all these people. Giants wage war. I mean, battle's terrifying. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Joseph, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Take courage. In other words, I know it's going to be scary, but I'm standing by you now. I've sent you here. I'm sending you to Rome, testify in all these places. It's what I have for you. My kingdom will continue to be built through your witness. So I think just three points here. I'm not going to really expand on them because, that's, again, that's not the point of these messages. That's what we do in house church. But one, it's necess- just packed into this little verse, Acts 20, 23, 11. One, it's necessary for us to testify to others about the facts of Jesus. Um, why do I say it's necessary? Because um, take courage, Jesus says to Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That verb must is, is the verb day in the Hebrew, in the Greek rather. And it just means it is necessary for you. 
Um, it's like when, when Jesus says the Son of Man must go to the cross, just as it has been determined to die in the place of sinners. Um, that, that's the same verb. He must go. It's written. It has to happen. It's part of God's plan. I'm doing it. This is, you know, it must happen. We must, and I can extrapolate, we, God has put you where he's put you for a reason. It's not an accident. It, it is for you to testify. It is necessary. You must do it, not out of compulsion, out of freedom, because it is the most liberating and the best news on planet earth. Um, so it's necessary for us to testify to others about the facts of Jesus. And again, just to pluck on that briefly, you know, he doesn't say, just the fact that he says, uh, he puts it that way about the, he could have said about the things of Jesus or about me, about the facts of Jesus. These are facts. Sometimes I think we can downplay that, forget that, lose confidence in that. Jesus was a historical person. Every atheist historian worth his salt in anything knows that. You know, we lived in Scotland for four years and your average Scottish youth doesn't even know if Jesus existed. That's because they haven't read history. Jesus, regardless of what you think about who he was, Jesus of Nazareth was a man who died on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem in about 30 AD. And he uh, was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. And he um, taught and he died on a Roman cross. And there's lots of evidence for his resurrection and lots of wonderful books have been written on that, not least the Gospels. But these are facts. Jesus of Nazareth came. What will you do with him? You can't sidestep him or get around him. You have to deal with him. You have to either in the end, if you're worth, if you're, if you're going to be honest, either reject him. And like Lewis says, either reject him as evil. Hey, I'm God. If you're not God, you're evil if you say that. Or you're crazy. You think you are, but you're not. So you're either... You're either a a liar, a lunatic, or you are who you say you are. And liar and lunatic don't really mesh with any of the other evidence we have about Jesus. So I personally think the facts about Jesus point to the fact that the evidence best points to the conclusion that he is who he said he was, the creator, the one God who came to save us, to be born a baby through the womb of a virgin and to grow up and to live a life of obedience in our place and to die a death of a disobedient person, a lawbreaker on the cross in our place and to rise. So it is necessary for us to testify to these facts. Um, And it's scary. That's why Jesus and Jesus, the fact that Jesus recognizes that in saying take courage is just so comforting. Secondly, though, he puts us in places where he wants us to testify. I'm not going to elaborate on that for time, but also just because he put Paul in Jerusalem. He's putting, he's taking him to Rome. He could have taken him anywhere, but he has those places for Paul to go. Those are two, by the way, as a sort of ancillary point, two really influential nerve centers. These, these big cities that are global at this point, 2,000 years ago in Paul's lifetime. One, one of them is... Well, anyway, they're very different, but they're both on the Mediterranean Rim and they're massive nerve centers. And there's a reason that Jesus takes Paul to those places because from there in his imprisonment, as he bears witness and testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel is taken from there to the world 
And so there's a special significance to cities. And this is, we've entered into the first century of the city where more people for the first time in history live <coughs> in cities than in the countryside, over 50%. And it's, it's just going to continue in that direction as far as we can tell. Um, and that's the, the, that's the trajectory of the scripture. So we shouldn't be surprised. The scriptures start in the country, a garden, and they end in a city in Revelation. And so that's, that's the way that history is heading because God's word um, doesn't just forecast history, it determines it. God's word shapes creation and it shapes recreation. Um, and it all passes through the funnel of the word, Jesus Christ. So, um, which is the, 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 that's the form uh, and the shape of the telling of history in the Bible, isn't it? That it starts with creation, this wide funnel. It's like an hourglass on its side. It starts with this wide funnel of creation. It funnels down into one people through Abraham and, and then Israel. And then it goes, it, it converges on this narrow waist, this wasp waist, as it were, this, the, mid, the center of the hourglass of Jesus, this one man, this Messiah, who steps into the world and then ends up hanging on a cross. You talk about a center point. And then from that cross and from the resurrection, the gospel goes out to all the nations and then to a recreated cosmos in Revelation. And uh, anyway, that's for free. That wasn't in the notes. But um, <clears throat> so that's the second thing is that he puts us in places where he wants us to testify. Just to be encouraged there that, again, I've said it, but it bears repeating that um, wherever he has you, he's put you there. You haven't ended up there. You haven't bounced around to there. He's placed you carefully there. Why? To have your best life now? To pursue a life of comfort? No. To testify. To testify to the facts of Jesus. Are you doing that? If not, repent. Don't feel guilty about it. He's born your guilt. Repent and ask him to fill you with the Spirit and to help you testify in community. Do it together. It's what we're called to do as a church. Let us be those who testify to the facts of Jesus. And then thirdly, and finally, he stands by us when we do. He stands by us. He knows it's scary, but he's got all these resources to be able to help us. He's God. He's man who has all authority as a man that Adam lost. You know, Matthew 28, 18, I, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. All the authority that Adam was given, I have regained through obedience and sacrifice. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Because he has all authority as a man and as God we can go and make disciples of all nations. It will work. It will work. And as we launch into a, a renewed, really a new focus on making disciples, who make, reaching the lost and making disciples, pouring our lives into them, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, and then telling them to go and do likewise, we have a system for that now that we're going to unveil and walk you guys through. And, and what, a, what a wonderful word to give us um, from this text here as we advance into that approach, as we advance into that initiative of making disciples who make disciples. Um, Jesus stood trial like Paul did. Um, he knew he knew what Paul was going through. He endured the cross, but he did not abandon us there. He will never abandon us there. For if he didn't abandon us at the cross, if he hung on to the end to finish payment for us and to bring us back to God, <clears throat> then will, when will he abandon us? Never. And then he gives us his spirit to help us. He, he gives us his spirit to come and to be with us and then to bring us up into the heavenlies, Ephesians 2, to be seated with him. We are more than conquerors. That's why the book of Revelation was written. It wasn't written to scare you. I can't wait to preach it, to teach and preach through it, hopefully in 2022. But the point of Revelation is not to scare you, and it's mistaught here. 
by and large. And, and if you are scared because of the book of Revelation, if you're looking toward the future to try to figure out the signs and the patterns to detect Antichrist uh, or the end times, you're reading it wrong. The point of the book of Revelation was, ri- it was written by Paul to a persecuted church to assure them that they were more than conquerors, though they suffered. Because Christ suffered, and he conquered through his suffering and death. And so he, that he was reigning, that they were on the winning side, and that he was using their suffering to build his kingdom and to bring others into it and to save, and that his kingdom was going forward um, over all the earth. And so <coughs> um, he's with us. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And that's these truths embolden Paul to preach the gospel over the face of the Mediterranean. And I pray that, that they would embolden us to do the same here and uh, where God has placed us in this Galleria, that we would own the lostness of this geography, that we would be, that we would steward this place and these people that we're given for a time, and that we'd be bold to testify to the facts of Jesus Christ.